0: Family druggist. Yes, friends, there are 10,000 such stand-ins for Santa this week. 10,000 independent family druggists who are ready, willing, and able to take the rush and worry out of your last-minute Christmas shopping. I need a gift idea for the ladies. Okay. How about Caranome? Caranome? The dearest name in cosmetics, my friend, and a Rexall exclusive. That's why your Rexall family druggist can show you distinctive Caranome gift sets for as low as a dollar and a quarter. On up to the most luxurious, completely fitted travel cases. A lifetime gift for $79.
1: And the men on my gift list.
0: Put them in the Stag line, ma'am. For Stag is Rexall's exclusive and popular line of men's toiletries. Designed for fine but completely masculine grooming, Stag products are individually gift boxed for as little as 75 cents. On up to handsome combination sets and fitted bags for $15.95. And you've got lots more ideas like these? Dozens of them.
1: No wonder you can stand in for Santa.
0: And we'll be doing it all next week at the store with the orange and blue Rexall sign on the window. Make it your headquarters for Christmas shopping. Merry Christmas to all from
2: Rexall. We're a little late, so good night, folks. Good night, everybody.
0: This program was produced and transcribed by Paul Phillips. Be happy on Christmas Day. Eliminate the rush and worry, the disappointments of last-minute Christmas shopping. Tomorrow, take your gift list to your Rexall family druggist. His store is filled with distinctive, sure-to-please gifts for the home, for the children, for the entire family. Gifts, it's a pleasure to give, economical to buy. Look for the store with the orange and blue Rexall sign on the window. This week, it's headquarters for just-right, price-right Christmas gifts. (laughs)
2: Stay tuned for Sam Spade,
0: then Maurice Evans on Theater Guild on NBC.
3: Happy
4: Holiday
5: to you. And that's right, Patricia and I, all, both of us, wish you a happy holiday.
6: Merry Christmas in July. That's right.
5: Well, that was the Phil Hour's Face show from uh, December 18, 1949. Any thoughts about that show, Patricia?
6: It was a great show because it showcased the entire cast of characters, aside from being a a fun show, and Remley with his electric everything that he wore. But I recall your having mentioned a while back that Elliot Lewis and acting were not necessarily the best of friends. It was not his
5: his prime choice. It was not his passion. Um, He was a... uh was born in Los Angeles area about 1920, and went to LA City College, where uh, in the late 30s, where a lot of famous radio actors um, who became well known all came together in a radio acting class, a radio studying class, and uh, Elliot Lewis uh, and many others. Jeanette Nolan, all took a class under the writer named True Borgman who wrote silver theater and later directed shows, and through that opening, they all got to get parts on silver theater and different radio shows, but uh, I think Elliot's true interest was in writing. He viewed himself really, especially in later life, as a writer, and as it, you know, here he was a busy radio actor, he was a uh, part of armed forces radio, That's where, uh, he had a good friend, Howard Duff, who remained best friend. They were responsible for all the Armed Forces Radio Shows cutting out the commercials. So they would get copies of the network show, and those those guys were part of the uh, Hollywood studio, uh, AFRS studio, that would cut out the commercial and send those back overseas to all the the affiliates. And that was their main job, and then, uh, always after the war, uh, married Kathy Lewis, somebody there during the war, and that was her true uh, maiden name, besides her married name, is Kathy Lewis. And in the 50s, they were really known as the first Mr. Mrs. Radio, the first acting team. And uh, he got into writing the script for Suspense and directing Suspense and that ping-pong for him producing uh, crime shows in the 50s and uh, wound up being the director of the I Love Lucy show. But his true passion really, and he always viewed himself, as a writer.
6: That He was so good at so many things, and especially his versatility in acting. He was Philip Carney on The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen. He was the captain. Right. And that was unique in the truest sense of the word. It was a one-of-a-kind role, and there had never been any like it before and never any like it afterward. So he actually created that persona, I guess. Um, you know, you can write a good story, but the actors bring it to life. And it, it, as a comedian, he was phenomenal, his timing and his humor and his uh, his voice. He, he had a voice that um, was malleable so that he could adapt it to the various roles. He was an absolute genius.
5: Well, uh, upcoming show we're going to play that Patricia picked out, is the Jack Benny Show from December 8th, 1946. And in this show, uh, Elliot Lewis generally had one role a season on the Jack Benny Show. And I don't think they ever called a character on the air this, but in the script called Muley. And he was always the guy that was behind the perfume counter selling Jack's perfume. And that strange, weird voice he had. So, uh, Elliot Lewis could get. He was just on top, um, and it's very interesting that F- Frankie Remley, the there was a true Frankie Remley. He was a left-handed guitar player part of Phil Harris' band. They met while Phil was going to Hawaii. Uh, Phil had an orchestra that would play on the on the boat to Hawaii and back, and this would be in the in the in the twenties. And they struck this long-term friendship and relationship. And you will always recognize Frankie Remley, everybody. And when you hear the Jack Benny show, there was this loud voice. This loud laughing sound in the background. And that's Frankie Remley. Uh, Jack loved that. That's part of the reason why they never had the band sit in the rehearsal. So Jack wanted that spontaneity um, from Frankie Remley. And so when they came up with the idea to start the Phil harris Alley Faye show in 1946, they really had the concept of actually having Frankie Remley play himself. And he just couldn't hit the lines right. And they knew that they needed some help, and that's when they had Elliot Lewis quickly stand in and take over the
1: role.
6: So he kept the name and assumed the role. And he just ran away with it. Yep. That's remarkable. Yep. Now, when, when we have an opportunity to talk about this, I, I want to pose a question to you. You just mentioned something about Jack Benny that I did not know, mm-hmm. that the band was not part of the rehearsal. Right. That there was a lot of spontaneity. And, of course, he was so good at ad-libbing. Yeah. Um, when somebody tripped over a line, he was a master mm-hmm. at making a joke out of it, and the audience just loved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... It it called to my brain that there were so many different techniques that the star performers used in order to create a show. Um, Bob Hope, of course, had had X number of scripts. I mean, he had hundreds and hundreds of scripts, and they would take bits and pieces of it and put it together and create a, a really fine piece of work that was preordained Uh, you know it was was quite well rehearsed right and um, so many of the others I mean Super McGee and Molly for example had some wonderful writing but occasionally they would drift from the script I heard the other day and I have no idea if this is correct you can tell me whether or not it's correct that Lum and Abner had a deal with themselves that they would frequently drift off script and it was the obligation of the person who drifted off script to bring the conversation back on track.
5: I would not. I, I definitely would believe that, yes.
6: You would believe Yes. It. And so, um, you, you have such an in-depth knowledge of all of these shows and, I, you know, I tease you about having your encyclopedia brain and everybody else does too, but it's really true. And you remember all of these things and you're able to integrate them and give some opinions on this. So one night, and if it's if it's not tonight, one night. But if it's tonight, that would be great to talk a little bit about how these preferences and how these techniques evolved with some of the individual performers and and why it worked for them.
5: Gosh, that, that, that's a great. What what we try to tackle that now if we can. Um, I think it comes down to the self confidence of the star. And a couple of class examples were the star did not trust his writing team. And two of them were Ed Garner of Duffy Tavern mm-hmm. and Eddie Cantor. They did not trust the writing team. Some
6: uh, more Isn't that interesting?
5: Uh, for example, Eddie Cantor would hire his staff of writers. They would write a new concept. And he wasn't comfortable with it. He would go out, take the script up, pull this old vaudeville routine, and punch stuff back into the jokes. Uh, she was just he, not. He micromanaged everything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he was never comfortable, uh, with his writing staff.
6: Would you would you consider? And this is a Walden opinion. Yeah. I'm asking about. Would you consider? that technique highly successful or do you think a looser approach might have worked better?
5: I think it would work better. I think what made Tanner work was his personality. I think that's why um, people gravitated to his show from the early 30s because that personality came over. That happy-go-lucky style that he had from the early 30s worked for him.
6: So who he was made the script, as opposed to the script making him.
5: Right. By the time, I, I would think by the time from the l- early 40s, uh, he was not in the. Uh, he was not pushing for number one. Mm-hmm. And I and I think by then the team, the people who had the writing staff and who trusted the writing team took over. It being the top dog in the radio market. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Cannon just loved show business so much. Uh, And probably why he loved vaudeville, he went back into vaudeville in the in the late 40s, even though vaudeville was dead. Uh, He would put, he left radio and went back to vaudeville. He would still he would keep radio. He would do a quick show from the late 40s early 50s, pretty much do away his comedy show,
6: mm-hmm. and go
5: back in to do vaudeville.
6: Okay, so that's that's where his first love was. Yeah. He, he was a micromanager. Yeah.
5: Okay. And, that's, and that's part of the reason why he discovered, discovered Eddie Fisher, everybody. Uh, he brought Eddie into his vaudeville show from the late 40s. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
3: Um,
5: so that's another guy who did not trust his writing team, which was, who was totally notorious for this, was Ed Garner.
6: Uh-huh. Of I want Duff, to hear about
5: this one. Of Duffy's Tavern. Uh-huh. Uh, and, um... I think he only trusted one gentleman, and I'm just drawing a blank of, oh, uh, Abe... Uh, uh, Abe Burles. He trusted Abe Burles, who, for a while, was the head writer of the, of the writing team. Huh? Abe Burles, his son, later, uh, created Shears on television.
6: Oh my And if you
5: think about it, there are some similarities. I just never sat down to watch Shears on television but Sheriff and Telf and Ed Garner, there is somewhat of a lineage of that.
6: Well, oh, they're both, they, the, both of them are centered within a bar, within a neighborhood bar, which yes. is their clientele.
5: So, Right.
6: is interesting? Yeah. I did not know that.
5: So father and son had hands in those shows. Mm-hmm. Um, Ed Garner, and I, he, if you told him a funny line, if you were a cab driver and told Ed Garner a funny line, if you were a waiter and told Eddie Gardner a Funny Line, he would hire you and put you on the writing team. How many writers did he have? Uh, well, many because he was the notorious fire of writers. If he was not happy, and which was very often, uh, especially he had a preview. So by the midway through the working week, he would take the writing team's script. And if he wasn't happy with the script, he would demand a new script within two or three days of showtime. And he was notorious for hiring and firing writers pretty much on the spot. And was that a sustained show, or did
6: they have an advertiser?
5: They did have an advertiser.
6: They did or did not? They did. They did?
5: They did. They did. Okay. Uh, Bristol Myers was the main, main one for them.
6: Okay, now, does the advertiser, or did the advertisers fit in this? Picture that you're painting, uh, and I'll use Ed Gardner as an example yeah. he certainly isn't the only one, did they not have any say about what was happening on the show, or did he have a, a total creative license here?
5: And I, I'm assuming for his show, and this is sort of the uh, breakdown, I believe radio shows generally were created, were owned by three different entities. And I'm assuming his show, because he was, Ed Gardner's background was a first as a radio director. Uh-huh. And he could not find anybody to play Ed Gardner. He did it himself. So he had control over the show. It was his concept his idea. So if he, he would he would be stronger than the advertising agency. There are some instances where the network create a show, some instance the advertisers would create a show. But my guess is Ed Garner created an only own show. Wow. So he had more weight than the advertising agency would.
6: So he really had a leash on that show. Right,
5: and and he he had he had tremendous people. He had somebody who i met a few times who people adore his work today, Larry Gelbart. Uh-huh. Larry Gelbart is pretty much the creator and th- comedy brain of *Mash*. Everybody. Uh, he started writing comedy when he was 14 years old for Danny Thomas in 1944, wow. and he was doing it for Ed Gardner when he was 16, then Bob Hope hired him when he was 18, and he wrote for Sid Caesar's Show of Show, starting at 22, uh, you know, and wrote for George Burns. Anyway, but Larry Gar- Gilbert was part of that writing staff and everybody part, but it was just a matter of survival.
6: How did they, in in that environment managed to get so many personalities come, they, they were even a little bit more than cameo appearance mm-hmm. but they had an entire string of shows that included big name personalities
5: they they, they must have the, 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 the proof of the pudding at the end must have worked um, and so if you think about it, the height of Ed Garner probably was around 1944 or so Telling of the War. He started, I think, pretty close around 42. You saw all those Hollywood stars that you're thinking of in that 43, 44 season, 45. Mm-hmm. And then you did not really see him in the late 40s, because that's when Ed Gardner took the show to Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, right. Yeah. So...
6: So those, those are two tight, tight... Um, they really directed, uh, semi-created, pro- I mean, they did everything. Yeah really control the show. Right. And you take somebody like Jack Benny who had this love of spontaneity, this ad-lib um, skill yeah. or ability that was priceless and it could take... A, a, I'm, I'm always awed at the way he could take somebody's love and his own and turn it into an integral part of the skip.
5: A classic example of that... Um and this is a testament to Jack Benny. Um, he had complete faith in his writing staff. That was, he realized that was a bread and butter. He also realized, um, generally, uh, Jack had so much faith in the script. He didn't really like the people to ab- ab-lib off the script. But if they made a boo-boo, he would play off that.
3: Uh-huh.
5: Um, and to tell you how much respect he had for writers... Uh, there's a classic story, and I, this, this week when I took substitute for Bill and Mike, I played the interview that Ray Breen did with George Balcher, who was one of Jack Benny's famous four writers, um, on the show. And George tells this story, and this is a classic idea of Jack the Man, I think. Uh, the way the Jack Benny show was worked, in the heyday, you had four writers, two were split up in partnership. Uh, the two of them wrote half the show. The other two wrote the other half of the show, and then they call each other and figure out what was the middle bridge and a piece of the pieces together.
3: That's amazing.
5: They brought it to Jack on Friday, and it worked all day with Jack. Well, Jack viewed himself as one of the writers, as the fifth writers. Mm-hmm. And there was a joke that he did not like. And he was arguing to the writing team, that is not funny. I just don't see this funny. And pause. And Joyce Boswell says, "Jack, you know you could be right, but we four writers believe that you're wrong." And he just, he, he, Jack broke up and he said, "You're absolutely right. If you guys who are part of my partnership think that's the way to go, we're gonna stick with the joke." So. He didn't use his trump card at the star, the owner of the show.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: He just went with the uh, collaborative venture of the, of the writing team.
3: Yeah.
6: That's interesting. I have one script, and then I'll, I'll let this go. We wind up in a conversation. and We've got a, a Jack Benny show, yeah. and I've got some questions that relate to Jack Benny. Good. Cibber um, McGee and Molly. I, I keep going back to them because it's one of the shows that I know more about. I found more intelligent. I talk about them because I know a little bit more about the show. But I have one, uh, obviously, copy, so I don't have an original script. I have one Cibber McGee and Molly script. And you know, I, as I mentioned before, he could take a flub and roll it, and so could Molly, and they were usually his slugs and could roll them into a new joke and still keep moving on. And there was one I recall not hearing not very long ago where Mrs. Uppington made a comment about the interior of Fibber and Molly's house. And the line was, it's supposed to, it's supposed to have been, it's not a palace, but it's ours. And he, wrote, he read it as it's not a place, but it's ours. And Molly said, You better go back and look at that again. <laughs> and, they, and they did. And he, and he reread it and he said, made a comment about it. They laughed and then just kept right on going. So he was flexible enough not to get irritated. Mm-hmm. He knew how to get his arms around it. But the script I have the, that was copied from the original and he signed off on was loaded with cross-outs, with new words, with um, adjusted lines. I mean, he really paid very, very, very close attention to even individual words in some of his lines. So he exercised an awful lot, at least in this script anyway, maybe it was not, uh, this is not representative of the entire show, but he really took some great pains, to make it sound like Fibber's language, like Fibber's show, like Fibber was supposed to say, And that is not consistent with the picture of being so flexible and having so much fun with uh, a missed line or a missed cue in the middle of the show. It's a, it's a juxtaposition. Yeah. that it seems odd. It's a, They're odd bedfellows. And you should think about from about 1935
5: to about 1943, Firmigate and Molly was written by one man, Don Quinn.
3: Uh-huh.
5: And, uh, and Catherine Crosby was good friends, and she uh, said that many times in the 50s on writing project, he would wait to the last 30 minutes. You know, he would do an all-nighter to get the script in. And I imagine he probably worked that way. Uh. uh. And by 43, he hired Phil Leslie to be his writing team. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And I imagine that was a different style for for Don Quinn to bring in a a a partner into the uh, creative process. I would think that would be an adjustment period, but that was during the heights of the war. And all those shows, I would think Patricia would agree, were were gold with the, with the war theme, the concept. And I know uh, in 19 in the 43 season, uh, the the Game Molly show had a. As a as part of uh, the duty to the war effort, they, de- they gave one show every month to a, a concept, a war theme, you know, to mm-hmm. save sh- sugar, to buy tires, to sell bonds, or mm-hmm. whatever. And you know that, that had to take sh- some concept and thinking to make to flesh those hi- ideas out.
6: And but, in between, they made great room for. Um, for comments, and for they they built in these war efforts into the regular script. For example, Alice was at work at one of the war plans. Mm -hmm. So that that got pulled in. I remember that they had a show about a spy. Fibber uh, thought he was being followed by a spy, and of course it worked out in his favor that time, but it was at the high secrecy, don't, uh, you know, the loose lips sink ships time of our lives. And they they brought this in so beautifully as part of the script and and accomplished so much as a result.
5: It, it tells you back to each performer looked like they had a different writing technique, uh, how they hand, manage and how they handled the writers. But I think the bottom line effort is did they have faith enough in the property? And if they did, I think those shows lasted. active. Mhm. You know. Now,
6: with, with, with Fibber, um, it just came to my mind that the script that I'm talking about, I believe it had, it was the one where he lost the button on his shirt and yeah. he wound up, you know, getting a thousand things. Right, that's
5: 1939. That was with Don Quinn, you bet, by himself.
6: When, but it was a show that Molly wasn't in. Uh-huh. Yep. I wonder if that placed extra pressure on both of them because Fibber had to carry the entire show himself.
5: I probably did. But remember, Molly was sick for a year and a half. Right. And uh, I haven't sat down to listen to a lot of the ones I just uh, acquired from 1938. I'm anxious to see how did they adjust it. The ones I've heard from early 39, there's definitely a different balancing act.
3: Mhm. huh Um...
5: It's probably why they try to bring Zazu Pitt into the show as you know, a female comedy uh, right counterpoint. Right. But uh, you know, I I th- she noticed when she came back uh, in thirty nine, they quickly fell back into the format that they wanted. It did
6: very easily. Yeah, very easily. They didn't
5: have any time to- they didn't have any adjustment period. They get fell right into it.
6: They did. The first show was uh, the budget. Molly came back and, what have you been doing, dearie? Let me see. And went over the budget. And, of course, it was, uh, it, it, had been through the meat grinder, for goodness sakes, because Fibber is not a mathematician. But, I mean, it just went right back into a routine. She took care of the budget. He wound up taking his lumps because of it. And that was the beginning again. Absolutely. As easy as it could be. So, anyway, I didn't mean to um, go off on a a tangent, but I guess it's not really a tangent. No,
5: it's just, just as as we we like to do, we like to talk radio, whatever strikes our little fancy. And
6: that that struck my fancy. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.
5: (laughs) You can give us a call if you like, 714-545-2071. We'll be playing a Jack Benny show next. One that Patricia picked out. Uh. Now, I got to pick out almost all the shows. That's right. This is just so this, cool this for letting me do that. Yeah, well, you appreciate it. This is interesting, folks. Uh, for many years, this show was lost. Uh, and within the last 10 or 12 years, it was, fa- it was released. Metacom originally released this. So, and those of us in the hobby always wondered what happened to uh, Dong the show. And so we finally got to hear it here within the last 12 years or so. So I'm glad that we have it, and because it's sort of the uh, the classic shopping show that shut off that whole run for a seven, eight year period. Um, so that's what we got forward to listen to. And so you want to give us a call, we can. It's 714-545-2071. You know, if you, wanna t- you might want to answer my question is, how did you find Yesterday USA? Or uh, you want to just say... You know, it's hot out there, or not, whatever strikes your fancy.
6: Or for the East Coast people, what are you doing up at this hour? <laughs> that is true. That is true. true. East Coast, please give us a
5: call. 714-545-2071. I know you do this because when I do have dead air at 3 in the morning, you call and let me know from New York. So I know I, I know I do have a few.
6: Ah, do call New York.
5: Okay. <laughs> 714-545-2071 is our number.
6: And I am a former New Yorker, so that should make you feel very comfortable
5: calling. <laughs> well, Patricia, any any uh, any thoughts, any feelings? That, oh, we got a call. We got a call. Okay, hello caller. Oh,
7: hello. Hello, Bob, how are you? Good, how about you? Hi, Patricia.
5: Hi, Bob, how you doing?
7: Good, i got to turn my sound down here so I don't don't have the feedback there. Well, was there a big heat wave in the country today? You guys keep talking about this.
4: There was a heat
6: wave. Uh, apparently, I, I get so proud of myself because I, I listened to 12 minutes of the weather station <laughs> this week, so I, I think I know everything, but apparently Texas... And the surrounding areas in the Midwest have been absolutely hammered by temperatures that have been well over 100. And there was well, a cool front. In
7: St. Louis today, we actually had a record low for this date.
6: Well, that was going to be my next comment. The, the one thing that everybody was talking about on that on the Weather Channel was that there was this highly unusual cold front that was coming down from canada it was actually a canadian cold front that is seen according to these people not every four years maybe once every four years and it was cooling everybody off and people were going to have to go to bed with blankies (laughs) so you're telling me it arrived
7: well i worked out all day today Uh, saturday i work outside all day and uh it was i don't think it got over 72 or 73 it wow. was delightful a nice breeze you know, it felt in fact yesterday morning when I got up and went outside it almost felt crisp Oh my it was very strange it was wonderful yeah it felt like um, maybe in the middle of October you know or, or, or even early November it, corn? Uh, it was very strange for st. Louis in July oh, 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 I'll take it
6: For anywhere the corn and the pumpkins are probably confused. Yeah, yeah.
7: You want a trivia question? I'm a, what's
6: that? You want a trivia question?
7: Oh sure.
6: All right. This one's a gimme <laughs> because we've been talking about the show. But maybe the other two will get you. Okay. Are you ready? All right. All right, you're hanging in there. We forgot. Lemon Abner's annual Christmas show was about helping a young couple whose baby was born in a stable on Christmas. And this was Christmas Eve, and they would make their way out to the stable. What was the name of the town where Lum and Abner lived? Now, you've got two other questions you can choose from.
7: Oh, my goodness. What was the name of the town? It's uh, Jotamdown, Jotamdown, Store. Uh, What's the name of their town? I know it. uh, Go ahead and ask me the other one. I'll think of it.
6: Okay, we'll get to the next one. You'll, You'll go back to it. Um, the next one, uh, which of these three radio characters was a Sergeant Friday partner in Dragnet? And the three names you can pick from are Ben Romero, Frank Smith, or Barney Phillips. And the Frank's
8: third question,
6: uh, Ben Romero, Frank Smith, or Barney Phillips. Yeah. The third question is your gimme. Who was the comedian who made the annual rit- ritual of buying the cheapest gifts he could find one year he bought shoelaces (laughs) for his announcer, Don Wilson. What have we been talking about? Okay, so the first one is Abner's hometown. Who was the cheapskate who bought shoelaces as a major Christmas gift? And which of these three was a dragnet partner? Was it Ben Romero, Frank Smith, or Barney Phillips? Which one would you like?
7: Well, uh, Well, I'll take the middle one. Ben Alexander played Frank Smith. Okay. On Dragnet, yeah.
6: Now, just, just the characters, Ben Romano, Romano Frank Smith, and Barney Phillips. Which of those characters, um, and you just named Frank Smith, which of those characters was um, Joe Friday's partner?
7: Well, Frank Smith was one of his but part- There was a Ben Romero, too, though, wasn't there?
6: Yes, there was.
7: Well, there was a Frank Smith, too.
6: Yes, there was.
7: Oh, they all three were?
6: Yes, they were.
7: Uh, who, who was the third one, uh, Patricia?
6: It was... Uh, uh, Barney Phillips, and he was-
7: no, in... I don't remember him.
6: Yeah, he wasn't there. If, if you listen to the shows and his name pops up, I think you'd recognize his voice. Uh, but you're right, He's, his name is not as pop-up as Ben Romero and Frank Smith.
7: Yeah, Ben Romero was the first one, and he, he died fairly young, didn't he? I mean, the actor.
6: Walden is your expert there. Yes, he Yeah, Walden, he did. didn't he?
5: Yes, he did. Um, he died very young. It was, uh, uh... was like 53. 53. He was 53. he was from one man's family. He was Doc Long of I Love a Mystery, Barton Yarbrough. And he... It was a week before Christmas, and he dropped dead of a heart attack in 1951. And he did the audition for television. And then, uh, Jack, uh, Jack Webb had to really scramble. You know, um... All of them had a scramble. Carlton Morris had a scramble for his show. Um, Anyway, it was a very hard loop. Tragedy.
7: Yeah, very hard loop.
6: Who was was the cheapskate?
7: Well, that was Jack Benny, yeah.
6: Of course, that was a gimme because we've (laughs) been talking about that one. Yeah, you're
7: going to play that next. This is the one you're going to play next is a funny, funny episode. It sure is. Yes, it is. It
6: sure
7: is. Is
6: Abner's hometown yet?
7: What's that? I, you know, I just can't remember it. I know it, but I can't remember it. Uh, I'll, I'll give that one to somebody else.
6: Okay. I won't say anything. Yeah.
7: Yeah. yeah. I, it's, uh, I, I, you know, the John Downs store, I, and, and I know it. I just, I, for some reason, I, I, I keep wanting to say Homer. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, well, now I'm thinking of a TV show, but anyway, it doesn't, doesn't matter.
6: I'm surprised you got that you remembered the jot down store, and you, you... Oh,
7: yeah. Well, that's the way they always opened it. Looting. So, yeah. Now, I like Lum and Abner. I think I think that it was a really good show. I don't listen to them a lot. If I happen to be, uh, you know, listening to Yesterday USA when Ronnie Millsap's show comes on, he always plays a Lum and Abner.
6: Oh, yes.
8: Oh, yes. The, yeah.
7: And I, I do love them. I just don't... I don't have too many on my hard drive. I think I've got a, a few CDs of theirs, but... It seems like I mostly listen to stuff that's on my hard drive. I've got about two or 3,000 shows on my hard Well, probably not that many, probably about yeah, maybe 2,000 shows on my hard drive, and that seems to be what I listen to.
6: But uh. Lemon Abner had hundreds and hundreds of shows. I mean, it just blows me away. And if you give me a little bit of time, I, would, I, I did download them all, and I would be happy to make a set of CDs. Oh, sure.
7: Yeah. Man, that'd be great. I oh, that was interesting what you were saying earlier, Patricia, about them uh, trying to get off-script. I, I didn't know that.
6: Not trying to get off-script, but betting each other um, and penalizing each other if the person who got off-script couldn't get back on.
7: Well, yeah, but didn't didn't you suggest that they kind of did it on purpose sometimes just to kind of play games with the other person?
6: <laughs> I didn't get that impression, but you could be... Oh,
7: oh, 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 that's what I thought you were trying to say, that, that they were, you know, that they would sort of test their skills or something. that's interesting,
6: yeah. Indeed could have been the case. As I listened to the description, I got the sense that because it was such a a conversational, down-home type script that they were working from, that they got into conversations that sometimes drifted off script. And when they realized that they were no longer reading the script and they were actually having a down-home conversation, it was the person's responsibility, the one who actually started the drifting, to get them back on track before the end of the show. That's funny. That thing is a great story. I hope it's true.
7: Yeah, yeah. I love that kind of stuff, that kind of background stuff. It's like with Dragnet uh, or with Jack Benny. Uh, when you get into and read some of the, the background on his show, and I'm, I know Walden stopped some of the writers, mm-hmm. but uh, they would literally uh, they would divide the writing writers into two teams, and they would literally write two shows for each night. And and if you listen to, to Jack Bitty, it's true. You could always hear. Usually the first half is like around the studio or at his home, and then the second half is he's going someplace, and you can clearly see the line where it's drawn usually. Mm-hmm. You know,
6: talking about they, they, a
7: little earlier, they kind of tie them together, but they're like two separate stories almost.
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Walden um, was teaching me a bunch of stuff about that and the writers a little earlier.
7: Oh, I missed it. I guess I was before I came.
6: He's my education. I plug in my ears and I just sit back and listen. <laughs> and Do yeah. Feeling, oh boy, I know good stuff now.
7: Yeah. I, I enjoyed your show last night, Walden. Uh,
5: Thank you, well, it, it helped, it, it is a true blessing to have Frank Brzee, who have talked yes. to so many of these people, and, I mean, I would, I was so grateful that I got the chance to get Art letter right over to Frank's studio a couple of years
7: ago, and, you know. It's funny, and Frank couldn't remember, didn't even remember the interview?
5: Yeah, well, he remembered the interview, the, the portion I played, he forgot that part of the interview.
7: Oh, okay,
5: alright. Yeah, I mean, he, uh. And considering who, let's face it, all the people Frank's interviewed, from Jack Benny to George Burns to Phil Harris, you know, I mean, there are bits and pieces that he would forget. And uh, so it was just a a hoot for me to pull up this clip and that clip and just have Frank react to it. Um, Is Art letter still in good health? Yes, he had a small stroke uh, a little over two years ago. But, uh, so I understand he recovered from that pretty well, and I think the hardest thing, and I think this would, would kill any, anybody, he lost his oldest son, Jack, last Christmas.
7: Oh, I didn't
5: know that. And now he's lost three of his five children.
7: Uh, and he and his wife... when well, you're What did you say, 97?
5: 97, 97, and he and his wife have been married for 75 years.
7: If you're 97 years old, it's, it's, you probably will lose. Yes, children.
5: but you think about it. To you know, for them, uh, and you know, they have tons of grandchildren, and they're a close family because he uh, always makes a point. He always encourages his children and the grandchildren to think of things, what they want to do, and what he would generally do once a year. He would rent a resort area and get everybody uh, together and hire speakers or motivation speakers just to help his, you know, families to think what they want to take on for the next year. Oh, that's interesting. It's a very interesting,
7: uh, and I think... Oh, what's really interesting is his story about how he got started, and it was just, you know, serendipity. Yeah. I mean, yeah.
5: Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, considering his background, uh being adopted, um, being homeless for a year, uh, that's part of the reason why, to him, he, doing a Christian work of, uh, helping fundraising around the country, around the world for missionaries who help the homeless, that's, that's his heart, because he said, it, it, for any young person living homeless and not having, not knowing where to go and where to eat, that's really helped driven him to, ever since he lost his daughter, uh, the last 35 years of his life. Yeah. You know.
7: Well, it's nice that someone that has so much yeah. re- realizes that, uh, the real value of having assets like that is to be able to help other people. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not to show how powerful you
5: are.
7: Yeah. 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 He, he was a funny guy. I, uh, you know, I, I looked him up on IMDb, and, you know, I, for all of his years and all the types of show business, he only has two film credits.
5: Yeah, he told Frank, he just didn't feel comfortable. He didn't view himself as an actor. Yeah. And he just didn't view himself as a, as a TV personality. Yeah. And he said his true gift was to talk to the common, ordinary man, and he said it'd probably be on his app that, you know, his, you know when he passed away. You know, I talked to 20,000 kids.
7: You know, he. Uh, if you go onto YouTube,
5: mm-hmm.
7: there's a wonderful... I had copied some stuff. I had been opening my shows with uh, some clips of him interviewing kids, uh, you know, from the old house party shows. Yeah. If you go on YouTube, there's a wonderful clip on there, and it's Bill Cosby doing a tribute to him. Because I don't know if you recall, Bill Cosby started a show, Kids Say the this Thing. Uh,
5: yeah, I can't remember that. I, I missed it when it came on, but you're right.
7: Yeah. But, well, anyway, and, and Cosby was interviewing him, and they were showing a number of clips of kids, you know, that Art Linkletter interviewed, and that's actually what I was using. I had, I had recorded those. Well, they had, like, one or two adults come to him, you know, there and say that you, uh, you interviewed me, and... And, you know, it was it was very warm and, and friendly. And then Bill Cosby said, Art, what would you say if I told you everybody in this studio audience were, were kids that you had interviewed? And he goes, no. And it was so touching because he got so moved. But here was a studio audience of probably 300, 200, 300 people. And they were all kids grown up that he had interviewed.
8: Wow.
7: And they got, yeah, you can see it on YouTube. And, and they all came up and started... Uh, you know, talking to him and stuff, and that's that's when they faded out. But it was pretty pretty touching. I think it was actually a um, probably a CBS television show mm-hmm. that they had done uh, as a you know or NBC maybe as a tribute to, uh, to Art Linkletter. But yeah, boy, that's really something. That well, I got you guys off subject. I'm sorry. No, you know,
5: we don't ever have any
7: subject, do we, Patricia?
5: I guess not. Good <laughs> <laughs> one.
6: Truly.
7: I'm sorry. I didn't even. I just. I started that off by just saying how much I enjoyed the show last night. That
6: I'm, I'm really quite serious. I don't think I've ever heard Walden have a subject.
7: No, that's true.
6: He has a show, but not a subject.
7: <laughs>
5: yeah. Well. That's, uh, well. I. I think to be honest with you, I think we all. Um have a, a passion for talk radio. I know Patricia does, I do, I know you do, Bob. Yeah. I, I know uh, Kim Bragg, uh, my friend Brian. I, and I miss those days of talk radio of the 70s and 80s was it wasn't all political. Well, it was a little bit... Talk
6: radio, it wasn't preach radio. You're absolutely right. Yeah,
5: and I, and I, and I, when I can get a chance to sort of uh, do that in a way, I think it, it's one of the best use of radio, in a way. Mm
6: -hmm. Resurrect the format. Mm -hmm. Um, You know from a long time ago that I am a talk show junkie. Uh, It's talk show that I'm interested in, and that's pretty hard to come by.
7: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and what's sad today is not only are they political, but everybody is so uh, radical. Uh, You know, it's just like there's no... No giving any middle ground to somebody that doesn't think like you. You know, it's just name-calling. and uh,
6: Exchange of information, there is yeah. information of opinion, and there
3: is no... one
6: of the two leaders who actually launched actual talk radio um, in 1959 and 1960. And it was at a time when callers had conversations with people. They weren't attacked or they weren't patted on the back. They They were conversed with as representatives of various opinions. And they didn't have to agree with each other, but they always had intelligent conversations.
7: Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, about that time in L.A., it's, you know, growing up out there, uh, KLAC was one of the first stations that went all talk. And uh, their their lineup was they had Joe Pine in the morning and he was political, but then they had Loman and Barkley, who you probably remember. Well, uh,
5: I Loman. do. I do. I do. It, in the 70. Yep.
7: Yeah. They were sort of the West Coast Bob and Ray. Right. And then they had, uh, yeah, a, a fellow named Jolie Spivak, mm-hmm. who, who since went east. And they had, um, well, anyway, uh, all of their people, that they weren't political. I mean, they might talk about issues of the day, but most of it was just sort of entertaining. And, you know, the, the issues didn't have to be political issues. It could be, you know... Uh, Simply topical. Yeah, yeah, just whatever it might be. Maybe there was a health issue or something, and people would call in and talk about it or, you know, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it was so sad because, uh, yeah, I used to listen to that stuff all the time. Ray Bream, I used to listen to Ray Bream all the time.
6: Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the joys of the old-time radio shows, like Jack Benny, for example. Um, they, they were fun. They were pure. They were uh, cross-generational. There was just something very special about those shows, and they frequently had topical comments.
7: Yeah, and you know what's funny about Jack Benny, particularly Jack Benny, uh, a couple other comedy shows will do it to me too. Sometimes Fibber McGee and Molly, who I like an awful lot, and also uh, you just played, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh,
6: Harris and Ellis. Alice- oh,
7: Harris, yeah. But uh, Jack Benny, I, I can still listen to it and, and be by myself and laugh out loud.
6: And laugh out loud, yes.
7: Yeah, I mean, there are things that will literally make me laugh out loud. Uh, and it's just it's just funny, and funny funny, and it doesn't have to be crude, and it doesn't have to be vulgar, and it doesn't have to be, you know, aimed at hurting somebody else. Of course, with him, most of the laughs are self-deprecating.
6: Yes, that, yes. You know, just... That's uh, a little earlier as well, where he could take a flub, one that he made and weave it into the lines of the show seamlessly, but knowing that he was poking fun at himself, as you say, a self-deprecating approach to humor. And it worked, but it worked best because it was really who he was.
7: Yeah. And I think one of the big things psychologically with Benny, too, is the audience was in on it. Mm. You know, it it was like... um, We were in on the gag.
6: Okay, speaking of gags, both of you folks can help me with this. When Alan and Benny, Fred Allen and Jack Benny, ended their feud, and Jack Benny was on the Fred Allen show, did they really steal his pants at the end of the show?
5: The answer is yes.
6: They did. They really? Yeah. I could not imagine that an audience would crack up to that level unless it was true. And
5: to be honest with you, Brian and I did that again in 2007. Did you? Yes. Uh, in Seattle. Uh-huh. Uh huh. We made sure we uh, took Eddie Carroll's pants away. Oh my gosh. Did,
6: was he expecting
5: it? Oh uh, Yes. He uh, we, we had a special design um, shorts. Uh
3: huh.
5: You know, very long and with LSMSTs painted on it.
6: Oh my gosh.
5: But both were in the hobby. Uh
6: huh.
5: It was a. Rec- there is a Film copy of that last uh, scene on a the Fred Allen show.
6: I did not know of an actual film.
5: That's been the big rumor, and people been looking. Some people said they seen it. Uh, I know, so it'd be fun to really see if they really did that. Yeah. You know.
6: Oh, what a what a
5: priceless. That would that would have Um
6: A priceless piece of work, and the repartee that went on at the end of that show. Um, you haven't seen the end of me. Yep. Was yep. one of the lines. Yep. I, it, it was just yeah. ad lib at its
5: finest. Yeah. yeah. I, I have an interview in my archive, and I'll play it where uh, Kenny Delmar, who is Sandra Craghorn and the announcer, on, uh, talked to John Dunning for a good 20 minutes about the Fred Allen and quite a bit about that show. Mm-hmm. And I think they and he did confirm it. It did happen. I, I hope you can, um, locate that. I will locate that sometime, you bet. You know, that's part of the reason why I love collecting interviews, because oral history like that, who people who've been there, done that, uh, to me is so important, because, you know, not everybody gets a chance to write a book. Yeah. You
7: know? Yeah, yeah that's right. Yep. And, and so the, the interviews move on. That mm-hmm. You're right, they're great. Mm-hmm. uh I just love all the interviews you play. You know, there's I, I finally got a really good not, I don't want to get off subject because talking about interviews. I finally got a really good uh, clear copy of the gunsmoke, uh, the history of gunsmoke
5: all Oh, you did.
7: Yeah. Good. They, they replayed it. The station in uh, in Washington. Yeah, Wham you aired it.
5: That's where they that's where it, that's where it was originally produced.
7: Yeah. Yeah. They re they replayed it recently. And somebody had sent me an email about it because they were streaming. They did it over two weeks, and they streamed it for the following week. And so I, I recorded
5: it. Yeah, Neil Ellis uh, found the master reel because he, he's now the producer for that station.
7: Yeah.
5: And so he got a chance to do a really good job. For those of you, uh, that's one of the early documentaries of radio around 1975. Um, they produced a four or five-hour special Gunsmoke Interview the Cast Members, and that was around in the hobby, not in all good sound. So they you Neil know, have sat down and upgraded the whole sound quality of oh, that. You know. yeah. Done a nice job.
7: Well, this apparently came right out of their archives because it was just... Christ- but what's interesting about it is, is the fellow that was the uh, host for the show mm-hmm. was talking about the fellow that produced this actually did most of it at his own expense. Yep. He went out to L.A. with his own tape recorder and sat down and, and, and got arrangements to interview all of these people, you know, I mean, that's, that's unique, because that's showing some, some foresight, because now, most of those people are all gone. Right.
5: Most of those are gone. And, to be honest with you, that's pretty true with most historians, uh, a lot of writers, like my friend Martin Graham and Jim Cox, uh, they'll pull money out of their own pockets to do the research and things in the book before they ever see a dime. True. And they, uh, uh, they have faith in the project that it's important enough to preserve history or all history to spend the money to go out there, and in some cases, uh, I know some books cost close to $18,000 to produce on a subject of old-time radio, if you go to certain libraries make certain trips, and they le- May
7: not get that
5: back. May not, but some but some, um, some believe in the lifetime of the book they will. Um... Now, you were saying last night, mm-hmm. what's his new book on? Uh, well, let's see here. I'm trying to think. There was a new book on, uh, Jim Cox put a new one out on the history of oh, the... Martin, eight, Martin Graham. Martin Graham's. Let's see here. What did I... Uh, well, Martin has several new books. He's working on the Green Hornet. That will be out within... Wait, he, he allowed me to t- talk about that.
7: Because it amazed me, you said he had something like, if he if he wrote everything down, he'd have something like 1,800 pages or yeah. some ridiculous amount. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, uh... You know, Patricia, I could see you doing that.
6: Yes, you could. <laughs> yeah, I,
7: I really could. I, I bet you'd love doing that.
6: My, my single, it's not my single, it's one of my biggest um, challenges to getting projects finished is that I love to research, and you pull a thread, and you want to verify that piece of information from yeah. other sources to at least give some credibility to it. And those two give you another piece of information, and I can start off doing something with the Mississippi River and wind up researching London. You know, I mean, it just—it yeah. just takes off that So
7: there, there, yeah, it's a matter of staying focused, yeah.
6: Yeah, yeah well attention deficit doesn't help there either <laughs> which I do have but um,
7: yeah
6: it can be a challenge
7: yeah I know Carol when she was writing my wife when she was she's been writing a book and, and we made several trips over to to some of the Civil war battlefields and whatnot where things took place to check things out historically and that was a lot of fun you know mm-hmm. you kind of look at things through a whole whole new set of eyes instead of just oh here we go you know it's like this is I don't know. You, you're just really trying to place her characters in among these people, mm-hmm. and and it, it really makes it live. Yeah.
6: You know? Yes, that they have uh, the integrity of the time period and the language, reality. Uh, you know, some some writers surrender reality and call it fiction. <laughs> you know, there are some limits.
7: Yeah. Sometimes it really, You know, it's funny. I read. Um, a recent book by Larry McMurtry, and it was about a a family that uh, was an English family that wanted to, they were a well-to-do family, and they wanted to see what the American West was like, and so they took this tour, uh, you know, kind of followed the Lewis and Clark trail, and they were kind of going to make a big circle, and I was just amazed. I, I thought he was supposed to be such a great historian, and I was just amazed at the liberties he took with these historical people and took them and put them in the wrong place at the wrong time at the wrong age and just, you know, and it just really bothered me.
6: And it wrecked the entire book because. It did.
7: You know, Uh, they had Kit Carson doing things that Kit Carson never did. Uh Oh, and, and, and uh, even to the point that he changed where Kit Carson died and the circumstances surrounding his death. And I thought, but you arrogant, you know, if you're going to do that, make a fictitious character. Don't take it. True. character in history and change the historical facts about the person. And I'm not talking about insignificant facts know. that might might be challenged. I'm talking about where the man died and, and how he died. and mm-hmm. But the circumstance, you know, it's just amazing. I, I just... Uh,
6: and Walden and I were talking earlier about writers and the scripts that they came up with and the creativity involved and who had their fingers in the uh, creative process. And one of the things that never seemed to be a problem was the integrity of the information. If there was an invasion, they talked about the news reports of the invasion. If they were talking about a war drive, they talked about it in real terms. And historic events when Cibber would talk about World War One, the big one. Occasionally there would be a comment about that, and the comment was always historically correct. There, there just was never any question that yeah. veracity won out.
7: Yeah, I guess. Well, listen, I didn't mean to talk this long, guys. I know you have an agenda. <laughs> I get to pick shows, is what the agenda was.
5: Yeah. What, what else do you have coming up? We have we have the Jack Benny show. Hey. We have uh, another film, McGee and Molly. Of course, Patricia picked two. She picked out a couple uh, Damon Runyon theaters. Oh. So we she ha- the, uh- Bickersons. She has a Bickerson. I mean, Patricia and the Bickerson go hand in hand practically. Uh, what else in my notes here? She had three Japanese shows picked out. And uh, what else? Oh, uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes, A Shadow. So I don't know how I don't know how much we'll get to tonight, but at least, least Patricia's shows are on hand. I've picked out a whole bunch of them. To,
6: they're, they're surprises for me, too. But I do hope, if you can do it, that you have room in the schedule to play the one with jack benny decorating his
5: christmas tree in fact we'll play that we'll do a double jack benny we'll play the two aces next and then we'll come back and play the, the jack is
7: that, is, is that the one where the, uh, the pull out pull out
6: pull out yes and he keeps, he keeps trying to he doesn't want to buy a new string of light so he keeps trying to repair the other one <laughs> every time somebody plugs it in he gets electrocuted <laughs>
5: It must have been a favorite. It must have been a favorite script because they sort of they used a version of that in 1948 when they were testing out the CBS studio before they made the move from NBC to over to
7: CBS.
6: Well, it it was right?
7: priceless,
6: yeah. and the the writing was good, but the delivery was priceless.
7: Yeah, yeah, he was he was tremendous. You know, uh, it's funny. I was reading fairly recently that uh, oh, what's his name, Kelsey Grammer. Mm-hmm. when he did Frasier, the show Frasier, which was very a very well-written show. Mm-hmm. But he said that he stole he his style directly from Jack Benny. And all of a sudden, I, I would watch the show and I would realize that he would stop and fold his arms and look at the camera. Uh-huh. Exactly the way Benny used to do. And he would do the uh, the, the pauses, you know, like Benny did. mm
6: mm-hmm. Yeah. And his Funny. mother might, and without too much stretch be considered the Frankie Remley of um, Phil Harris and Alice Faye. Where What's Fra- that now? Was a, Frankie Remley was uh, with Elliot Lewis was kind of an unwilling substitute and with uh, Fraser's brother. Oh, yeah. No. And as a single show person and wound up as a, a loved personality from that single show. And,
7: yeah, yeah, won all kinds of Emmys from that. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Too. Johnny Carson did a lot of uh, a lot of his routine. He borrowed from Jack Benny too.
6: That that one I did know. Um, it's it's yeah. really amazing how much influence old time radio and early TV had yeah. on what we're seeing today.
7: Well, you know, Jack Jack Benny could do
6: uh,
7: Carson when his monologue would bomb. It was just as funny as if, if it if it was on. Uh-huh. Because of the, the way he would do his, his pauses and double takes and he stole all that from Jack Benny.
3: Uh-huh.
7: You know, Jack Benny could just you know, on radio it was a pause. When it was on T V it was, you know, the, the the stare, you know, but uh you you could laugh at his pauses harder than some other things, you know, just uh-huh. yeah.
8: Uh-huh. All
7: timing. Okay guys, good night. I'm going to bed. <laughs> good night, Bob. I, I will I will listen to for the next half an hour and then after that it's off to Betty Bye. Off
6: yeah. to Betty Bye. Well, I'm glad you called, Bob. Thank you. Okay.
7: Take care, you guys. All right, Bob. Thanks so much.
5: Um, bye bye. And there's Bob Bill from St. Louis. We're doing well tonight, Patricia.
6: Yeah, Merry Christmas, everybody. Christmas in July is cool.
5: Yeah. Hopefully you're keeping everybody cool.
6: Uh huh. And we get a call from New York.
5: Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. It'd be nice. Seven one four. Five four five two zero seven one. 545 2071 Do we have anybody in New York that want to give us a call to let them know that the state of New York will be representative? I know it's there. It's part of the, stif- it's it's part of the 50 it's states. It's part it's part of the union, the last I knew. It was there when I left.
6: <laughs> 714-545-2071. It's
5: our number. 714 545 Two o seven one is our uh, happy number here on Christmas in July.
6: And somebody has to come up with the name of the town where Lumen Abner lived.
5: That and is right.
6: Googling is acceptable. When we get back, somebody has to call.
5: And that would be good. Just one of the interesting things that uh, um, Bob was mentioning about the Jack Benny show and Kelsey Grammer using the. Uh, the pose, the folding the arms and things, and one of the things we did in Seattle this year was to have kids ranging from age seven to seventeen do the Jack Benny show mm-hmm. at the Beavers. Right. And I guess the most priceless thing about the whole show was at the very end, the kids and did a photo op, and Eddie kill got involved with the kid. Doing the Jack Benny pose.
6: Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, good stuff.
5: Yeah, good stuff. So, good stuff. That, those are going to be some of the things that Brian's going to be sending me. Um, and I hope we'll have pictures up that people can see on the website, on repsonline.org. Huh? And uh, Brian promised in the fall we'll start playing those recordings on the Sunday night show. But anyway, just uh, a helpful hint that... The Jack Benny Pose is still being used today by kids who never saw or heard of the Jack Benny Show.
6: Isn't that great?
5: That is good.
6: Good story.
5: Yeah. Well, Patricia, you think it's time to play the Jack Benny Show? I think it's time to play the Jack Benny Show. All right. This is from December 8th, 1946, another show that Patricia picked out. She got good taste. Boy, did she get lucky? I'll tell you what. <laughs> I know. I know. She was a good old girl this week. Oh, Boy, was I good. You were good. You and Tini. <laughs> All right, here we go, everybody. Well, we'll put Joe Stafford away and bring you over to Jack Betty Show. This is live radio. You can sell it out.
9: The Jack Benny Program. Quality of product is essential to continuing success. In a cigarette, it's the tobacco that counts, and... L-S-M-F-T. Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. Yes, Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. It takes fine tobacco to make a fine cigarette. And year after year, at market after market, independent tobacco experts... Men who spend their lives buying, selling, and handling tobacco can see the makers of Lucky Strike consistently select and buy that fine, that light, that naturally mild tobacco. Fine, light, naturally mild tobacco. Yes, Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. And this fine Lucky Strike tobacco means real deep-down smoking enjoyment for you. So smoke that smoke of fine tobacco, Lucky Strike. So round, so firm, so fully packed. So free and easy on the draw. The
8: Lucky Strike
9: program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day and yours truly, Don Ladies and gentlemen, Christmas will soon be with us, and millions of people are rushing around making hasty last-minute purchases. So let's go back to last Monday and look in on a lovely department store in Beverly
3: Hills.
2: Have you made up your mind yet, mister? Well, well, I don't know. That was
9: Monday. We now bring you up to Wednesday. Same store.
2: Now, look, mister, you've examined them both very carefully. Haven't you made up your mind yet? (laughs) Gee, I... I don't know which one I want. That was Wednesday. We now bring you up for Saturday, (laughs) night. Same store. Gosh, I... I wish you hadn't shown me both of them. Let me see that first one again, will you? Look, mister, I got a wife and five kids. (laughs) I'll have to be home in a week. Don't up your mind, will you? Gosh, I... I can't decide... This one looks nicer, but the the other seems to be more durable.
1: Oh, Jack, for heaven's sake, shoelaces are shoelaces.
2: (laughs) Mary, when you're buying a gift for somebody, you don't rush into things. (laughs) Now, let's see. If I take the... Oh, pardon me. Hello? Yes? Oh, thanks. Thanks for telling me. Goodbye.
9: Gee, it's so hard. Look, mister, I want to go home. I got six kids now.
2: (laughs) Well, congratulations. A new baby. Do you mind if I buy something for the little fellow? No. No, why don't you buy him a (laughs) razor?
8: A razor? Yeah, by the time you pick it out, he'll be old enough to use it.
2: (laughs) Hmm. That's an old joke.
1: It was new when we came in here.
2: Now, well, look, Mr., I'll take these shoelaces, the, the shorter ones. Well, oh, thank heavens. Now do you want the metal tips or the plastic tips?
1: Here we go again.
2: I'll take the plastic ones. The metal ones rust.
1: You're right, Jack, but of course you know the plastic ones crack.
2: Oh. Well, then wait a minute. Uh, let me see. If that phone rings again, I'm going to punch you right in the way. Give me the metal one. Yes, sir. I'll pick them up later. I'm opening a charge account. Uh, Come on, Mary. Mary, you have my Christmas list, haven't you?
1: Yes, here it is.
2: What does it say?
1: It says, uh, dear Jackie boy, I couldn't meet you last night because the customer spilled a chocolate soda all over my uniform, so I have... The list is on the other side. (laughs) Give it to me. Uh, Wait a minute, Jack. Who's... Josephine. The little blonde car hop at Simon's Drive-In.
2: She used to work at the Glendale branch, but they promoted her to Beverly Hills. <laughs> Gee, I, I hope that chocolate soda incident doesn't send her back to Glendale. <laughs> you know, she's very pretty, Mary. The drive-in uses her picture in all their newspaper ads.
1: Oh, yes, I remember. She was Miss Cheeseburger of 1945.
2: <laughs> yeah. She'd have made it this year, too, but her mustard was on crooked. <laughs> she just wants to show you fate, a little thing like that. Let me try dress, Mary. Yeah. Can I help you, young man?
9: Help me? Yes. You've been standing in front of this counter for ten minutes.
8: Oh, I'm sorry, I'm confused.
9: Well, that's understandable. You're confused because it's Christmas time. You've got the Christmas spirit. You're doing your Christmas shopping, and you're looking at so many different things.
8: Well, that explains why I'm confused in December. What about the other ones?
9: Well, I wouldn't know about that. I'm a coal miner by trade. I'm just doing this to help pay the fine.
3: (laughs)
8: Oh, well, gee, I'd like to get something for my parents.
9: Oh, your mother and father, eh?
8: Yeah, how did you know?
9: <laughs> I, uh, I just figured it out.
8: Oh, I know. I think I'll get my mother a new corset.
9: Well, don't you think oh, she, you. she should come down and pick out her own corset?
8: Oh, mother hasn't left the house for three days. Is she sick? No, the string broke on her old one and she can't get through the door.
3: Oh!
8: Yeah. We were spending a quiet evening at home and... BING! The through in all directions. Oh, my goodness. Was anybody hurt? No, but my father got pinned to the wall.
2: me up that size 44 corset and I'll take it with me. Yes, sir. Now, let's see uh, see that list again, Mary. Oh, yes, a dozen blades for Phil, some handkerchiefs for Rochester, some little toy for Dennis.
1: You told me at Ciro's last night you were going to buy Dennis a grand piano.
2: Last night, I had four glasses of Muscatel. I'm all right now, so where's the toy department? Oh,
1: wait a minute, Jack. What about your producer, Robert Ballin?
2: Oh, yes. I don't know what to get him.
1: Oh, Jack, look, why don't you get him one of those new canvas golf bags?
2: Yeah, he'd love that.
1: And it's only $15. Oh.
2: Gee, <laughs> I just happen to think he he doesn't play golf.
1: Well, why don't you give him a nice cocktail shaker?
2: Say, say, that sounds good.
1: And it's only $12.50. Hmm.
2: <laughs> now, I just happen to remember, he doesn't drink either. <laughs> uh, what else can I buy him?
1: A knife and fork. Let's see you get out of that. <laughs>
2: Oh, stop, will you? I'll think of something. <laughs> now, let's see. Hi, Jack. Long time no see. Huh?
1: <laughs> <laughs> huh?
2: Oh, oh, hello. Come on, Mary.
1: Uh, who is that?
2: Oh, he's a racetrack cow I used to see at Santa Anita. You remember we ran into him at the Union Station last year?
1: Oh,
2: yes. Say, Mary, I want to get a watch for my sponsor. I wonder where the jewelry department is.
1: Well, there's a the floor walker. Ask him. Oh, yes.
2: Oh, floor walker? Yes. Uh, Can you tell me where the jewelry department is? Yes, but you'll hate yourself in the morning. Look, I didn't ask for any wisecracks. You either give me a civil answer or I'll report you. Now, where is the jewelry department? It's on the third floor. Thanks. Like fun it is. Never mind. I'll find it myself. Hmm. It's a fine store to do business with. You walked in here, Lotus Blossom. Nobody
3: dragged
2: you. Oh, quiet. Come on, Mary. We'll find her. Mary, let's go upstairs and get that watch for my sponsor. We'll take one of these elevators.
1: Well, number five is just about to go up.
2: Yeah, let's hurry. Hey, uh, Jack, yeah. Hey, Jack. Huh? Oh. Oh, it's you again. Yeah. Come here, a minute. What is that? Where are you going? Upstairs.
8: Yeah.
2: Which elevator are you taking? <laughs> uh, number five. Uh uh-uh. uh.
3: <laughs>
2: what?
9: Take number three. It'll beat five to the top by two and a half floors.
3: But
2: but number five is about to go up. I know, I know, but she's carrying too much weight.
3: Well,
2: I don't know. What do you think about number one? Uh Uh-uh, local. Can't go the distance. Uh, Well, what about number two? Slow starter. Well, it really doesn't make any difference. I'm only Christmas shopping. Okay, it's your money (laughs) I wonder where he gets his information
1: Jack, are we going up or not? So far, all you've bought is a pair of shoelaces
2: Well, at least the... Say, Mary, I was thinking Maybe you were right about those plastic tips. I think they're better than the metal ones I'll go back and change them
1: Oh, Jack Come
2: on, I'm gonna change those shoelaces Pardon me, miss uh, Would you mind waiting on me, please?
1: Why, yes, sir. What can I do for you all?
8: Well, well, honey, Chuck,
1: where y'all from? Alabama. You know that's down south.
4: Well, call my phone and mint my julep. Shake hands with a fella rebel. Oh, are you from the south, too? Am I from the south? Just run your hands through my hair and feel those bold weevils.
1: Well, I declare... Hey, wait a minute. Your voice is awful familiar. Haven't I heard it before? Well, I sure you have,
9: babe. I'm Phil Harris, the Texas Toscanini.
1: Well, imagine that. Just wait till I tell the other girls that I waited on Phil Harris. Now, what would you like to buy?
9: Well, sugar, I don't know.
1: How would y'all like to see something nice in lingerie?
7: Now, honey, you know you shouldn't throw me a line like that. <laughs>
1: You're so cute.
9: Yeah, everybody notices this.
1: You know, Mr. Harris, you're so much different than I pictured you to be. On the radio, you're such a braggart. You sound so conceited.
2: I know, but it ain't really like that, honey. But Benny's writers always write me that way.
1: His writers?
2: Yeah, every time they get a hold of a
9: beautiful hunk of man, they make him conceited. (laughs) Now,
0: look, let's see what I can get for my wife. Oh, I know. Give me one of them negligees there.
9: Yes,
1: sir. Shall I wrap
0: it as a gift? Yeah, fix the package so she can't
9: peek into it. You know, seal it over with some of that there scotch and soda tape. I'll have it wrapped
1: up for you in just a minute.
2: But look, Mr. Plastic Tips or Metal Tips, what difference does it make? Well, it's a gift, and I want it to be right. But those other shoelaces are more expensive. I don't care. I'll take them anyway. When
1: he buys shoelaces, money is no object.
2: (laughs) That's right. Give me the expensive one. All right, all right. You're not hurting me. I work on commission. (laughs) Just wrap them, and I'll pick them up later. Come on, Mary.
1: Uh, Jack, I want to stop them at the lingerie counter. (laughs) like this shade, miss. I'll take this pair of two-thread hose. You're wrong, lady. This hose is three-thread. Oh, no, it's two-thread. I beg your pardon, but it's three-thread. Listen, sister, don't argue with me. Not so long ago, I was standing right where you are.
3: <laughs> That's all,
4: Well, hello, Mr. Biennale. <laughs>
2: I see the Yule
4: time is catching up with you. Oh,
2: hello, Mr. Kitzel. Are you doing your Christmas shopping? (laughs) Ho ho ho!
4: The things I am buying for my little daughter, I am uh, buying—you should excuse the expression—a piggy bank. And my little boy is at the age where he is going in for sports, but I don't know what to get him.
2: Well, why don't you buy him a badminton set?
4: Yeah, I'll pay a little more and I'll get him a good minton set. <laughs> what? Christmas, Christmas only comes once a year. I guess you're right. But I'm having trouble finding what my wife wants. What's that? A marshmallow. <laughs>
2: Oh no, you mean a mix master?
4: That's right, I mix Marshall. Well,
2: yeah. so I'm sure you will find one in the appliance department. Yeah, thank you. Well, goodbye, Mr. Kitzel. Goodbye. Mary, uh, Mary, while you're buying the stockings, I'll go over to the toy department and get something for Dennis. All
1: right, Jack. I'll
2: see you later. Well, there you are, Mr. Wilson. How does that shoe
9: feel? Oh, it fits perfectly. I'll take that pair. That's fine. And would you like some extra shoelaces? No, I always get a pair for Christmas. Well, that must keep you excited Yes, I never know whether I'm going to get plastic tips or metal tips Well, I'll have these shoes wrapped for you in just a
0: minute, Mr. Wilson
9: Bye. Oh, hello, Don Well, how are you, Jack? Doing your Christmas shopping? I was just going over to the toy department I just came from there, and I bought you the most novel thing you've ever seen in your life For me?
2: Yes, in fact, I'm not even going to wait till Christmas I'm going to show it to you right now Well, what is it? Look But, Don, that's nothing but a set of toy wooden soldiers. That's not for me. Just watch what happens when I wind them up. But, Don... him up again. Never mind, Don. I don't want it, but it was a nice thought anyway. See you later. Uh,
1: don't bother racking him as a gift. Here you are. Thank you.
8: Oh, hello, Dennis. Hello, Miss Livingston. Gee, am I tired. I just walked up to the sixth floor and back. What? Why didn't you take the elevator? Well, I was gonna take elevator number three, but some man came over and told me it was scratched.
3: <laughs>
1: Oh, yes. He's a friend of Jack's. What are you doing here in the music
8: department? Oh, I was just going to buy some records. Here's a swell one, Mary. You want to hear it? Yes, put it on. Okay. Old oh, buttermilk sky I'm um, and my field on you What a good word tonight Are you gonna be mellow tonight Oh, but a
3: new sky Can you see my little
8: young dear me We're as happy as a Christmas I'm gonna pop her the question, do you do, do you do, it'll be easy, so easy, if I can only find
2: again, will ya?
1: Here you
2: Yeah. Yeah, I still have to get a present for my old girl, Gladys the I don't know what to get her. Do you think she'd like a lipstick?
1: I don't know she got lips.
2: <laughs> be so funny. I think I'll, I think I buy her a bottle of uh, I think I will buy her a bottle of perfume. Let's see what else. Oh, yes, I'll have to send something to Fred Allen.
1: Fred Allen? I didn't know you and Fred exchange gifts.
2: Oh, sure. This year, I'd like to get him something he needs. I wonder what department sells plasma. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, come on, I'll get the perfume first. I think it's right over there, hold but... Oh,
3: look, up, there's Jack Benny. Hello! <laughs>
9: What? What's that? May I have your autograph, Mr. Benny? My autograph? Yes, it will make me so very happy. Yes,
3: indeed, so happy.
9: <laughs> well, uh, I'll,
2: I'll, I'll be glad to. There you are. Oh, thank you very much, Mr. Benny. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Who was that guy anyway?
1: What's the difference as long as he's happy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, here's the perfume counter. What?
2: Here's the perfume counter. Oh, yes, yes. Uh uh, perhaps, uh, I'd like to buy some perfume. Okay, mister. What kind of perfume would you like? Well, uh, I don't know. What's popular right now? Well, here's something that's not too strong, yet leaves a trail of broken hearts. <laughs> oh, it's called Avec Trajitambuco Moissary Trae Bean. <laughs>
3: what,
2: what does that mean in English? Condensation of steam that's been forced to a motorman's guard. <laughs> they go to so much trouble. No, no, I don't think I'd like that. Well, here's some other perfume called Essence of Smog. Well, I don't know. Mary, do you think I ought to take a bottle of this? Oh, certainly.
3: Uh,
2: How much is it, mister? This is 25 bucks an ounce, and the other one I showed you is 30 bucks. Well, haven't you anything a little more reasonable? Yeah. I even have some perfume for 25 cents an ounce. 25 cents an ounce? What kind of a bottle does that come in? It don't come in no bottle. We keep it
1: on tap. (laughs) On tap? I bet they serve pretzels
2: with it. Well, I don't think I'll take any. By the way, mister, how come they put a fellow like you behind the perfume counter?
9: Oh, my regular job is in a delicatessen department slicing limburger cheese.
3: <laughs>
9: limburger cheese? Yeah.
7: Once a month they send me here to neutralize me.
3: Well,
2: uh, where do you know? uh, Come on, uh, I'll get the perfume later. Let's go home, huh? I'm, uh, I'm tired.
1: Well, don't forget to stop at the notions counter to pick up the shoelaces you bought, the ones with the plastic tips. The shoelaces? Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, but, hey, wait a minute. Did I get the plastic tips?
1: Sure, you went back and changed them.
2: Oh, yeah. You know, Marie, now that I think about it... Yeah.
1: Yes, Marie, I
2: might as well get what I want, and I'd rather have the metal tips. Come on.
1: Oh, look, there's Rochester buying some neckties.
2: Yeah, and that floor walker's waiting on him. Let's sneak up behind him.
9: I think this tie is beautiful. It's very unusual. Yeah, but I don't think my boss would like it. It isn't his style. I see. (laughs) What type of man is your boss? Well, he's medium tall, medium weight, and rather conservative. (laughs) You mean he's conservative in appearance? It goes deeper than that. At least he's subtle.
1: Quiet, I want to hear
9: this. Now, here's a nice tie. Maybe he'd like this one. Yeah, that's a pretty thing. How much is it? It's only $3.50. How much? $3.50. Too bad
3: he would have liked that one.
9: (laughs) Oh, fine. (laughs) Well, if you don't want to spend quite so much, here's a nice tie for $0.89. Well, that's close to what I have in mine and wallet. Of course, it might be a little too plain for your boss. Is he a young man? Mm. No. Is he middle-aged? No. <laughs> Is he elderly?
2: Wrap it up. <laughs> Rochester, bon Jones. Oh,
9: hello, boss. I didn't see you. I know
2: you didn't. Don't be buying me any 89-cent ties. You keep out of this. I'm working on commission. <laughs> now, look, Rochester, you've been with me 10 years now, and I've been very nice to you. I've always tried to make things pleasant for you and keep you happy, haven't I? I'd like
8: to hear
9: Judge no. Goldberg's opinion on that. <laughs>
3: Never mind.
2: Now, I'm leaving you here and I want you to decide for yourself whether or not I'm worth more than an 89 cent tie. Come on, Mary, let's go. Hey Mary, which tie do you think Rochester's going to buy me, the one for 3.50 or the one for 89 cents?
1: Well, if you were Rochester, which one would
2: you buy? I'll fire that guy. Oh, here we are, Mary. Here's the notions counter. Oh, say, mister. Yes. About the shoelaces I bought. Oh yes, yes, I've got them all wrapped up. Here you are. Well, I've been thinking about the plastic tips, and I think the metal tips would be much better. No. 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 But all I, all I want to do is change them. Change them. Change them, he says. This can't be happening to me.
9: This must be a dream. Look, Mister, I've always been a good man. Always did the right
2: thing. Look, mister... Worked oh. hard in this store. A loyal employee. Look, clerk... I... When the Christmas season started, they gave us our choice of department. I know. I could have had any counter I wanted. But I took shoelaces. Look... Shoelaces!